We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The words, maybe the most well-known words from our Declaration of Independence, hashtag America. Um, and they're well-known because of what they communicate. Like everybody has rights that you shouldn't be able to take away and given to us by our creator. And he says certain rights, and then he says among these, so he just gives three of them. Life, you shouldn't, shouldn't be able to take away somebody's life. Liberty, you shouldn't be able to take away somebody's freedom. And pursuit of happiness made the top three of our rights that can't be taken away. And that's interesting to me. It makes me think, okay, yeah, but like it makes sense because that's what we're living for. Like the pursuit of happiness is something that every single one of us understands and identifies with. And that is one of the reasons why it's, it's helpful to walk through Ecclesiastes. And some of you three weeks in are like, why are we doing this book? It's so depressing, like no meaning. No, like, everything's vanity, just striving after the wind. Like, why are we doing this? Well, if you stop and think about it, like as he's on this journey to find meaning and purpose and happiness in life, it resonates with all of us because that's what we're all doing. We're all trying to find meaning. What, why am I here? What's the purpose here? What's going on? Like, what, what am I supposed to be doing? And, and how do I find happiness in that? When you're searching for meaning, like, and purpose, like, and, and wanting to count and be a part of something big, like, ultimately, it's because you want to feel happy. You want to be happy. You want to be content. You want to, you want to experience life with the blessing that comes with that. And so as he's on the search, if you stop and lean in a little bit, it resonates with us because the pursuit of happiness drives us all. That's the point of chapter 2. The first part of chapter 2 is he's saying the, the pursuit of happiness it's driving us all. It's every single one of us can relate to just trying to find something to make sense in this life, some kind of meaning and purpose that will make me feel like I belong, make me feel happy. Like, I want that. I want that kind of contentment. And the pursuit of happiness is what is driving us. Like, it drives almost every decision, if not every decision that we make, that every single one of us is on this pursuit. We're on this journey. We're on this quest to find meaning, purpose, and happiness. There, there's a book by David Gibson called Living Life Backward. I've been using it as we've been going through Ecclesiastes. It's really, really helpful. And here's what he says about this. He says, what we long for and live for is happiness on the surface of our lives and at the deepest level of our lives and all our varied pursuits, earning a living, finding a spouse, raising good children, having fun, keeping fit. We exhibit a common desire to be happy in what we do. We not simply exist suspended motionless in time. We shape and change the world and seek to control it. We plan and dream about our individual lives. We live with a purpose toward a specific end, and we have a goal to be happy. That's what we're after. We're chasing after happiness. We're, the pursuit of happiness drives us all. And so Solomon, as he's writing Ecclesiastes, he's been walking us through this, hey, I, everything's really vanity. Everything's like a vapor. It's like you try to grab it, try to hold on to it, and you, you don't have it. And so there's this meaningless, like, what's the point of it all? And the first chapter, like we talked about last week with Scott saying, like, does, will wisdom fix it? He goes after wisdom. He goes to university. He goes and gets all the degrees and all the diplomas and all the claim from that. And, he, and he, he attains wisdom. He feels like he's maybe the wisest person ever lived. He's attained it all. And he comes to the conclusion that it, it didn't satisfy him. It didn't give him what he was really looking for. He thought, if I get wisdom, I'll have everything figured out. I'll have all the answers. I'll be content. I'll be satisfied. I'll find meaning, purpose. He's like, well, that didn't really do it. And so in chapter 2, he just starts pursuing pleasure. 
He starts pursuing what he wants. He starts pursuing happiness. And, 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 and he kind of walks us through that. And, and as it resonates with us, because we're all in that same pursuit, he comes to the end of it and he's like, and it, it, didn't, it didn't work. When I was pursuing pleasure and pursuing happiness, it didn't work. It was still like, it just slipped right through my fingers. And every single one of us has felt like that. Like, oh, if I get this, if I have this, if I attain this, I'll really have it. And then you get it, and it's like, oh, man, that, that wasn't what I was hoping it would be. It slipped right through my fingers. And, and it's probably because there's a couple different paths that lead us away from where we need to be in our pursuit of happiness. And it's common to every single one of us, and he kind of walks us through those paths as well. And the first one is this, that we tend to pursue it in the wrong way. As we're pursuing happiness... We do it the wrong way. We do it for the wrong reason, for the wrong motivation. I don't know if you noticed this while Angela was reading, but the number of times that he says I or me or for myself, it's staggering. And it's everything he says in this first section. I went after pleasure. I went after it all for myself, for my purpose, for my pleasure, for my happiness. The first word of chapter two is I. I said in my heart, come, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But yourself, he's really just talking about himself. And then, like, everything he does, I did this. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards. Why? For myself, for my pleasure. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I, I, I accumulated all these possessions, all these people and possessions for myself. I did it all for me. In, in verse 9, he says, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom remained in me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. It slipped, slipped right through my fingers, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. But everything he's doing here is pursuing pleasure, pursuing happiness for himself. It's just for me. Everything I made, it was, it was just for me. Everything I tried to get and tried to find, like it was all for me. And, and that's the, this path that we deviate from this, that we get off track when we tend to pursue happiness in the wrong way because we have that same temptation that's always in front of us. Just do it for yourself. Get all you can. Accumulate all you can. Achieve all you can. Get us to be as successful. Like build, build the biggest thing you can. Like do what you want for yourself. And it never satisfies us. And he says, I did it all for myself. I was trying to bring myself happiness, and I didn't find happiness at the end of it. Maybe just a temporary moment, and then it was gone, and I needed more. And we all kind of resonate with that because we all have that temptation in front of us all the time. The Bible teaches that if you really want to understand life, like you need to love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. And when we get off track and start loving ourselves more than anything else and pursuing everything for ourselves and our gain and our acclaim and our fame, all that, like we, we find that it never satisfies us. It never leads us to the place that we wanted it to lead us to. And so we tend to pursue it in the wrong way. But the other side of this is that we also tend to pursue it in the wrong things. Everything that he walks us through, all the lists, like they're not necessarily bad things. Some of them are kind of definitely outside the box, but most of them are kind of good things. But here's what he's doing is he's putting an ultimate agenda on them. He's making them ultimate. I have to have these things. The way that I'll find meaning, purpose, and happiness is if I have and acquire and achieve these things. And when you make these good things ultimate things, all of a sudden they become the wrong things. 
All of a sudden, they become bad things. That's what idolatry is, is when we take good things and we make them ultimate. I have to have it or I won't be who I think I need to be. And then all of a sudden, when it's taken away, like we're crushed, when we make good things ultimate things, they become the wrong things. And so everything he does here is just a reminder that these these things can't be ultimate. They won't satisfy. If you're doing that, you're looking for your satisfaction and happiness in the wrong things because they can't give them give that in and of themselves. So what does he do? He kind of walks us through a, a few different things. First, he goes to the comedy bar. He's like, I pursued it in laughter. I wanted to just laugh and just like have fun with life. And he's in the bar. So he's like, and I cheered myself with wine. And I was trying to find happiness in that. He got some singers, right? I gathered singers for myself, which in that day and time, nobody just had singers, right? This is like the first Alexa. Hey, Alexa, play me some, sing me some of David's psalms. Like the, the, he's got singers. He's got all this entertainment. He's like, I didn't find it there. And the, the, the wine thing is kind of interesting when you start reading the scholars. They kind of get sideways on this because they're like, some of them think, well, he was, he was obviously getting drunk, and that will never satisfy you. And some are like, well, he says he still kept his wisdom, so maybe he was just drinking in moderation. Maybe it wasn't wrong. I don't know if it really matters. Because what he was doing, he was trying to find his happiness in a substance. He was self-medicating. Like we we're all have that temptation in some way or another to, to, to medicate, to self-medicate, to make the pain go away, to find joy, to find happiness, to find whatever it is that we're looking for. And he says, man, I pursued that in comedy and laughter. I pursued that in the, in the bar. I pursued it with singers and entertainment. Didn't find it. It doesn't, it doesn't last. It slips right through your fingers. It's like grasping after the wind. Like I, I didn't get there. And so he turns from that to work. I mean, I made gardens and I made tree, uh, planted trees and I built houses and I planted vineyards and all this stuff. Like he's doing all these things to create this wonderful place for himself to live in. It's kind of like some shadows of Garden of Eden without the restrictions, right? I, everything I wanted, I, anything my eyes desired, I, let it, I, I just took it. I just had it. And I, I built this garden. I did all these things. And he's like, and I didn't I didn't find satisfaction in that. When I built one vineyard, I needed to build another one. When I had one garden, I needed a better one. And I needed better fruit. Like, it, there was never a satisfaction. There was never an end result like this is, I made it. I finally got it from this pursuit. And, and let me just say this because I want to be clear about this. Work is a good thing. Work is a gift from God. Uh, we, we were given work before sin entered to the, in, into the world. Adam and Eve were created as perfect in the Garden of Eden, and they were given a job to do. Be fruitful, multiply, cultivate, cultivate the earth. They were given responsibilities and roles. Work was a part of God's perfect creation. Sin made work hard. Sin made work a drudgery. Sin has a, a corrupted work, but work is a gift. So we ought to be people that work. And work hard and give our best effort to something, to, to pursue excellence in whatever field that God has put you in. Like, you ought to be people that work hard. We ought to be that. And we ought to be proud of that. But you can't find your ultimate identity in that. You can't find ultimate meaning in, in your work. In fact, the, the problem is, is if we put too much stock into our work, we find too much meaning or try to find too much meaning and significance and identity in that, it'll sometimes lead us away from things that are more important, like our families. Sometimes it'll lead us away from things like this community that we have here, from God's word and following him. And sometimes it'll lead us to compromise God's standard for our lives in order to achieve more at work. And so it's a slippery slope and you can't find ultimate meaning and satisfaction and happiness in our work. Like that's not what it's for. It's good, but it, it can't be ultimate. And so he turned from work after he didn't find anything there and then he be began to just accumulate things. He got as much possessions, herds of cattle and 
uh, all kinds of livestock and gold and treasures and slaves. Like everything he could acquire, he acquired. He was doing everything he could to do that. And he found, man, this, even having everything, did not satisfy him. It resonates, doesn't it? When, when you think, man, if I just have this one thing, I'll have what I'm really looking for. I won't, even need, I won't even need anything else. If I have that, I'll have everything I need. And we tell ourselves that. And we're like, if I just had the latest iPhone, I'll have everything. I need that latest iPhone. And you get that latest iPhone, and it's amazing. And you get a nice case for it. And you're like, this is awesome. And then they announce that they're coming out with a new iPhone. <laughs> and all of a sudden, my happiness is gone. Like, it never satisfies. It never lasts. It's never, it's never really what we're looking for. You can't accumulate enough stuff. When you accumulate all this stuff, you just want more. You never find yourself satisfied. And he's saying, hey, I accumulated all this. I mean, I had so much, and it wasn't enough. And then he turns to just sensual pleasures. I mean, we know that Solomon had a 1,000 wives and concubines, a 1,000 women at his disposal. Like, you talk about looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> he had all that. He's like, it, it wasn't enough. It wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't satisfying me. That there's none of these paths, if you make them ultimate, that, that, that will really satisfy you. And, and the, the interesting thing about this for me is that it's helpful to see Solomon walk us through that because it's a reminder for us, but we didn't need him to tell us that because we all have a story like that, don't we? Like most of us in here have a story where we thought, man, if I just got this, or if I just acquired this, or if I just achieved this, or if I just was able to do this, I would have what I'm really looking for. And you got that, or got close to it, and you found out it didn't. It was a dead end. We could put the microphone up here and just, hey, get in line, and everybody will have a story. If you don't have that story yet, it means you're just young, you're just figuring it out yet, but you'll have that story probably. Because these things, like, they won't satisfy us. And when we, when we pursue our happiness and things and possessions and things we can acquire, we're, doing, we're, we're looking for it in the wrong things. We're, we're seeking out and making idols of good things, and that becomes the wrong things, the bad things. A guy named David Hubbard said, Pleasure's advertising agency is much more effective than its manufacturing department. <laughs> Think about that for a second. Pleasure advertises some great deals. Their marketing is good. Do this and you will find what you're looking for. And their manufacturing department is not keeping up with the demand. It never does. It never, it slips right through our hands. And that is what he says. He walks us through his journey to try to find happiness and possessions and work and all this. And I didn't, I didn't get there. I didn't. And so then he says, hey, does anybody ever think about death? And you're like, what in the world? Like, he screeches this whole thing to a halt. Like, anybody ever think about that? Because he wants to think about that. So not the last time he's going to do it, but he brings this whole idea of death into there. And, and here's what he seems to be saying here in chapter 2, is that death seems to make all of our pursuit pointless. He comes to the conclusion that everything, this ends in death. And he basically says, well, it doesn't, doesn't really matter how you live because we all end up in the same place. And I want, I want you to see this. In verse, verse 12, he says, so I... I turned back to wisdom. I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then verse 13, he says, hey, then I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there's more gain in light than in darkness, which is interesting because he's actually saying it's not all meaningless. It's better to live with wisdom than folly. It's, it's better. You'll, you'll find life is better if you pursue wisdom and you, don't, and you stay away from foolishness. 
Look at verse 14. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So it's better to be, have your eyes in your sockets instead of in your pockets. <laughs> I mean, it's better to, be, to have your eyes open. The wise person can see. He's, he's got some understanding that the foolish person won't ever have. But then look at this. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool happened to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also, this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after the wind. Death seems to make all the pursuit pointless because death comes to us no matter how we live. That's what he's saying. Hey, I, I, I chose wisdom, and it was better. I mean, a little bit, right? But in the end, the wise person dies and put in a box and buried in the ground. The foolish person dies and put in a box and buried in the ground. The end, the same end for everybody. So what's the point? It, like, doesn't death seem to make the pursuit of what we're pursuing pointless if that's the end that we all have? And he compounds that as he's talking through this. The death comes to us no matter how we live. And he says this, death leaves us no control of our legacy. And that makes it even worse for him. If we all end up in the same place no matter how we live, that's one thing. But if, if it takes away what we hope to achieve and leave behind, if it, if it takes away what control we thought we had on our legacy, then that's even worse. I want you to see this. Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toil and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Solomon needs a hug, y'all. Like somebody just give him a hug and say, hey, it's going to be okay, man. It's going to be okay. And it's so depressing to read that and think that if Solomon was alive today, there's no doubt he'd be writing country and western songs. I mean, this is Richmond, north of Richmond right here. That's what it is, Ecclesiastes. That's what we're writing. I mean, all my toil, all my work, it's just it's a waste because somebody else is going to enjoy it, not even me. Death leaves us no control of our legacy. Like, you can write your will and testament. You can give your instructions. You can share your wishes. But once you're dead, you're dead, and whoever inherits or whoever takes it over, like, they get to do whatever they want. They may be wise. They may do wise things with it. They may be a fool and they may squander it. They may waste it. Death robs us of that control that we thought we had of our legacy and what we leave behind. Like it's, there's no guarantees on that other side. I mean, you think about this. Think about universities in our nation that were started to train pastors for ministry. Harvard, Yale, like those universities. That's why they started those universities. We need to train the pastors. Think about how far away they are from that intention now. How way, like you can't even find your way back to that original intent. That legacy has been taken away. Like that's what he's talking about. Hey, when you die, like you got no control over this anymore. What happens, what happens? Like a wise person or a fool, doesn't matter. Like they're going to do what they're going to do. And so death is, 
leaving us, of taking away our control, leaves us no control of our legacy. And that, I mean, that sounds pretty, pretty depressing when you think about it, but here's, here's what it seems like he's doing, which is really interesting to me. It seems like he just, he cracks the door open right here and, and just kind of give you a little bit of hope. And, and one of the things that he's doing is he seems to be saying, and, you, and you'll see this play out in the rest of the book, is he's saying, hey, what death does, though, is it really teaches you how to live. When, when, you, when you're face-to-face with death, and we don't like that, right? We avoid it. We hide from it. We don't talk about it. We don't even know what to say when somebody's experienced it. We, we, we run away from it. We, we, we work out and take vitamins and eat healthy, and we even eat kale, right, so we can avoid death. We were trying to get away from this, and then, so we, we're like, no, I don't, I don't want to deal with that. But if you, if, you, if you just consider the fact that if you think about death the way that the Bible teaches, like it kind of shows you what's really important. It kind of shows you where your values ought to be. Death can kind of help us understand how we're supposed to live life. Here, here's, here's a quote for you. David Gibson, Living Life Backward Again. Death can radically enable us to enjoy life. What? <laughs> I mean, think about that for a second. Death can radically enable us to enjoy life? And here's why. By relativizing all that we do in our days under the sun, death can change us from people who want to control life for gain into people who find deep joy in receiving life as a gift. Changes of perspective. This is the main message of Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. Life in God's world is gift, not gain. He's like, hey, doesn't matter what you do, death comes for all of us. But he's not just saying that to make us sad. He's saying that to go, so change the way you live. Change your perspective on everything. And the reason why we know that is because at the very end of this, he finally brings God into the story. The last few verses, 24 through 26, after I did this, and I did this for myself, and I made this, and I achieved this, and all this stuff, and it didn't satisfy me. He turns the corner and gives us some hope here at the end. Verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering, collecting on the gift to one who pleases God. This is vanity and striving after when The sinner's plight is vanity. But to the person who follows God, the person who loves God, who lives for God, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. And here's what he seems to be saying. That life and all of its pleasures are a gift from God. Life and all of its pleasures are not something that we achieve and work and strive and like just kill ourselves for. Like life and all of its pleasures are a gift from God. And death helps us remember that. Knowing that death is the end for every single one of us. We're not going to avoid that, right? Like, knowing that makes today more meaningful, doesn't it? Like, you wake up today and you have breath in your lungs and you can go to Whataburger for lunch if you want. Like, that's a gift from God that he's given you. Like, if I know that every one of us is going to end up in the ground, then today was was a gift that I didn't think about before. And that's what it seems like he's doing. He's changing his perspective. Life and all of its pleasures are a gift from God. When I was young, I, uh, I chose to major in English when I was in college. I chose to major in English in college. And I did that 
in a lot of ways because of the impact that the movie Dead Poet Society had on my life. I don't know if you know, remember that movie? It, it was like, it, it was an inspirational moment for me. And you're thinking, wow, so you watched that movie, you were so inspired that you chose English as your major. That's lame. And yeah, you might be right. But the moment in the movie that got me was the carpe diem moment, where he's got them all looking at the old pictures of people that are gone and died and trophy case and all that. And he's like, listen to what they're saying, boys. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Live a life that's extraordinary. Make your life count for something. And a lot of people look at these passages in Ecclesiastes where he comes to these conclusions like, hey, just eat and drink, be happy. They think it's a carpe diem moment. Like, seize the day, just do what you want. It doesn't matter anyway. But if you really understand what he's saying, he's saying, yeah, seize the day as a gift from God. Receive every single moment, every single thing in your life, every single day as a gift from God. The, the, the things that life offers us, the pleasures that life puts in front of us, they're not bad things. They're meant to be enjoyed as a gift from God that we receive, not something that we have to pursue with all costs to make it the ultimate priority in our lives. We just receive every single thing. It leads us to contentment. It leads us to meaning and purpose and happiness, all those things. If you understand that life and all of its pleasures are a gift from God. One of the books that impacted my life the most over the years was a book called Desiring God by John Piper. It changed the way I saw the world. It really did. It's a great book. I've, I feel like it's like a classic at this point. And the main point of the book is this quote, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I mean, just think about it. Piper calls it Christian hedonism. That God is glorified. That's the purpose of our lives, that we are here to bring glory to him. And he says we're, he's glorified when we're satisfied in him, when we receive him and all that he brings into our lives as a gift, when we're satisfied, when we worship him, we pursue him and value and treasure him above everything else. We're so satisfied in him. Guess what? God is glorified in those moments, that that's what he desires. For. Instead of just like living for ourselves and living for what we can gain and, and getting on the, in the rat race, like, no, just receive this and be satisfied with what God has given you. And that, that quote and that book really changed my perspective because it drove me back to the gospel and what God was doing for us and how Jesus redeems everything. The gospel redeems the, everything about our pursuit of happiness and meaning and purpose. The gospel informs all of it. And that's the advantage that we have when we're studying Ecclesiastes, that we have what he didn't have. We have the, the end of the story. We have the gospel story. And in the gospel... Because what Jesus did, it changes our perspective on everything. So it leads Paul to say in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You're eating, you're drinking, you're working, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God and watch him redeem it all. Watch him make it not worthless and not meaningless and not just vanity because you're doing it for his glory. Whatever you do. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Did you see it? Ecclesiastes says all the work, man, it's just vanity, striving after the wind. And the gospel tells us that because of what Jesus has done for us, that when we, when we do whatever we do, for his glory, whatever calling is on your life, whatever way you're cultivating the earth, whatever occupation, career, field, whatever it is that you're in, you're, you're joining in God's work to cultivate the earth, you're being obedient to it, like all that. When you do it for his glory, your labor's never in vain. 
It, it, really, it really does matter. It really takes on meaning. It's way bigger than anything you could have ever achieved on your own. And so we, we let the gospel inform this, and we see all of life as a gift that God has given to us, and we rejoice in it. We enjoy those things. What, what if eating and drinking wasn't just something we had to do because it's that time and we got to feed ourselves so we you know, stay healthy or whatever, stay alive? What if eating and drinking was a gift from God, not to be overlooked, but to be enjoyed with friends and family and community? What, what if your job, what if our work wasn't just so that you could be successful and acquire more things, but so that you could be faithful and even have an opportunity to be more generous? And what if death, even death, is there to be used by God to teach us how to live? And because of Jesus and what he did, the work that he did, that we couldn't do on the cross, he gave us the gift that we couldn't earn and we didn't deserve. And because of that, it changes everything. So we can find what we're really looking for in him. Let's be the people that do that. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the truth that is in your word. Thank you for how it teaches us and leads us and points us in the right direction and corrects us. But God, ultimately, how it shows us who you are, what you've done, and how we're supposed to respond to it. Thank you for that, God. And so today, help us, God, in, as we process this, as we respond and worship, help us to abide in your word. Help us to abide in you. Help us to see you, who you are, what you've done, and help it to produce in us a, a response that will lead us to the place of meaning and purpose as we bring glory to you. And God, we pray that in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.